This case is not a whodunit. Doreen Vincent's disappearance in June of 1988 occurred after a physical altercation with her father, Mark Vincent. That's what Mark told police. You're probably wondering why he isn't in jail. Or why, despite being questioned more than once by the Wallingford police, who he gave conflicting and contradictory responses to, never charged him. Or why he waited several days after Doreen's disappearance to report it. You know, the clothes he told the police Doreen was wearing when she left were still inside 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road. Not one credible piece of evidence exists proving Doreen ever left that house. Sharon is dead. Mark is evasive. I've spoken to Mark Vincent, and I've exchanged text messages with Mark just within the past few days. He refuses to speak on the record and insists he said all he's needed to say. And yet, his daughter's been missing for 31 years, and when the chance to help solve the mystery comes his way, he isn't interested in helping. This is episode 10 of season 2 of Faded Out. I'm Joe McGuire, the executive producer of Faded Out. Sarah Dimio is on assignment in Des Moines, Iowa, and we'll have a season 1 update in the Johnny Gosh case beginning Tuesday, April 23rd. This episode will feature a prominent figure in this case, who has never been questioned by the Wallingford police, even after we informed the police of her existence and the fact she was willing to talk. So let's go over what we know so far, or what's been reported at least. We have a girl about three months away from 13, wrapping up 7th grade and heading to Whirlwind Hill in Wallingford with her father, stepmother, and two little siblings. Some people in this story want to call her a runaway, a chronic runaway. But she's done it once, maybe twice, and gone straight to her mom's. Ten days later, she's gone, vanished. No one reports it for three days because the adults in question, Mark and Sharon, have said nothing kept it quiet. Mark's been gone for hours at a time, supposedly looking for his daughter, and he's also taken the phone off the wall. Sharon, we find out over a year later, has taken Doreen's things to her next residence after Mark has cut bait and run out on her and the kids. Where did he go? Well, we know he was with Roseanne Poloni in Wallingford, and he says he was there, in town, the whole time. Teresa Lyons says otherwise. I happen to be sitting there on a Sunday reading the paper and having a cup of coffee, and I see there's this big article she was missing. I'm like, oh, my God, you know? And that was 10 years after the fact, and that's when it all started coming about. That's when he, he, I got back with him. I contacted him, actually, for my concern for his daughter. And then, of course, my ex-husband had a note. He had a good friend that worked in Meriden, um, he was a detective for the missing children's. And I called him, I said, you know, this guy has kids missing, and he met me at the mall, at Old Naugatuck Valley Mall, with a whole bunch of, you know, private detectives, and I got nervous. I thought I did something, what, you know, what, what am I doing, you know? Yeah. And not knowing, really, I'm kind of harboring a fugitive, because now that I read the article that he was, nobody knows his whereabouts, nobody knows where he was for that whole year that yeah. he was missing. And he lied. He's a liar. He said he was in Wallingford the whole time. No, he wasn't. And I can prove it. Jessica Fritz Aguirre is our lead investigator. She was the one who actually spoke to Teresa. Jessica, who is she and how did you find her? She came to us through the Record Journal after Sarah interviewed with Lauren Tacoris the first time. Um, Teresa called the paper and asked to speak you know, to someone on the team. Sarah spoke with her briefly, um, and I've spoken to her now, I don't know, probably about six, seven, eight hours. I mean, she's got a lot to say. You actually just spoke to her before we started recording today as well. I did. I wanted to let her know that, um, you know, I, I think she's been waiting patiently for the information she needs to bring to bear on this case to be, um, you know, shouted from the rooftops. Now, I'm sure many of you have noticed the wide gap between June of 1988, when Dory went missing, 
and July of 1989 when warrants were finally pursued and hard questions were asked. We don't have much information on the days between June and November of 1988, a serious problem given that a child is missing, and that almost 31 years have gone by without one sighting. Now I'm talking about November 1988 to June of 1989, when Roseanne Poloni called the cops, when the Wallingford Police Department finally found their man. When, when he left and you said he was paranoid, was that because, were you purposefully making him paranoid because? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Because after that detective told me that um, you need to get him out, yeah, I was a little scared. <laughs> you know, going back to the day and age, there ain't no cell phones, there's no nothing. Yeah. You no. Know? So here's one thing I wanted to ask you because I did just literally look up the tornado, right? The tornado was July 10th, 1989. Okay. Okay. So the tornado was July 10th, 1989, and he was arrested. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I take that back. They found him at Roseanne Poloni's house after she called the police to report a domestic incident. And I guess he didn't, I guess he didn't hit her then, but she said she feared for her life. brought up whose suggestion was it to meet was it your suggestion or hers um, i think it was both i think it was both because i didn't want to keep talking to her on the phone in the event he got my phone bill okay because he would see the date and times and he would didn't do those numbers and if they were coming from my place so why that's when we decided to meet and it was it was only like a up 20 minutes for me and 20 minutes for her, so I, I can't really say even where we met. I want to say, where is Wallingford? Is that Danbury or Meriden? No, it's liter- It's right next to Meriden. It's right smack dab in the center of the state. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, we might have met there then. And it was a diner, you said? It was just some little diner and very pleasant, very nice, very nice woman, you know. The... She, is important we'll get to that a little bit later on she was talking about her relationship with Roseanne Poloni both Jessica were dating Mark and uh, I think both maybe suspected they weren't the only person in Mark Vincent's life well I think at the time um he was hiding out from the police that much has been you know borne out in the warrants but uh you know Teresa told me a bunch of times he would just like leave for hours. I mean, you can't have a relationship with two women, one in Naugatuck and one in Wallingford and not be spending a significant amount of time away from both of them. And he started dating Teresa in 1978. Okay. Here's Teresa telling you exactly how they met. It was in 1978. Okay. Um, I, would, I would say like in July. It was, we both worked at the Southbury Training School. It's a very large institution with small little cottages, or big cottages, with the 
the mentally and physically challenged. Um, it's a pretty high-profile institution in Connecticut. Okay. State, you know, I was, we were both state employees. I met him because he worked where my sister worked in the cottage. They were called cottages. And we hooked up. And, um, you know, he, he suddenly moved in with me. I had just gotten my own apartment, my sister and I. And we were living there. And he's, he moved in. And I'm like, okay, and I, you know, I'm 18 years old, I'm in love, and I'm like, he's drop-dead gorgeous, and this, but he always had that dark side, even way back then, I didn't, there was something fishy about him. And then he left, I came home from work one day, I didn't see him at work, all his stuff's gone, and his mother worked, she dated a janitor up there, the custodial, what you know, guy up there, and I asked him one day, I said, where's Mark, I haven't seen him, heard now remember there's no cell phones there's no nothing throughout any of this mm-hmm. and he said oh he went back with his wife and kid now that's the first i knew of it so he's living with me under the pretense that he's single and and then he had the audacity to come and visit me at my apartment with with doreen she was three years old just this is a big reason why retreads are generally a bad idea they are so she meets mark in 1978 uh He's got this adorable little daughter, Doreen. We fast forward after they've they've parted ways at this point. We fast forward now back to 1988. You heard her mention earlier on. She heard about him missing, about Doreen being missing. She decided to reach out to Mark to offer support. They began another relationship. She had just moved into a new apartment in Naugatuck. As she told you the story. Now, it's important to understand that when we first spoke with Teresa, uh, Sarah talked to her briefly. You did a couple of interviews with her. And after the first interview, I didn't believe this was a real person. I I was stunned. And the idea she'd never spoken to police just seemed to blow my mind. I thought maybe she had just read this and was making things up. And I asked you to vet out. The fact that this was was legit, and you did. I did. So we're going to now have Teresa explain basically what happened here. Uh, like I said, she has a new apartment, and here comes Mark back into her life. It was, it was the same as before. He kind of just, it was kind of gradually, I, a little bit, but then he forced, then, then it became like right in. You know, I got my own place. He would come down and... We would go out, and then he had to go run back. So he, I don't know where he was running to, to be honest. He never said. And then when he, then the tornado hit, and he was going to come down and visit, but he couldn't come in because there were power lines down by my driveway, and it was like a hill. So I couldn't get out if I wanted to with my car. And I said, there's no sense. So he says, I can do it. I'll come down. I want to come down. I got to, you know, he's all concerned about me. That's a bunch of bullshit. He was more concerned about his welfare. And yeah. he did. He came down and he jumped over the wires and made himself at home. And then he moved in and to stay? Pardon me? And then he just was there to stay, really? I was his uh, safe house, I guess you could say, because, um, I mean, we never really did anything. I worked all the time. Um, he took off during the day. He had apparently something happened to his car. He had a car when we when he first started um, in Naugatuck, and then all of a sudden it disappeared now he's like at the mercy of my car but i felt i was at the mercy of my own car you know he dropped me off at work or you know take off i don't know where he's going i don't know what he's doing so we took a lot out of this part of the conversation as far as i asked you to vet out whether this person was legit or not and you were able to make make some connections here that proved that she was a real character in this story well, I think one of the big things for her is timing, um, you know, and she's able to place herself at certain, you know, events that are relevant. The uh, tornado that she mentions I Googled was July 10th, 1989. And then you'll remember in that clip, she didn't recall where Mark's car had gone or his truck, um, you know, put it up against the warrant. And that was when his truck was seized at the end of July. I believe it was the 24th of 89 when they finally took his car in um, to be searched. So that's why he needed her car. So the timeline from Teresa started to really add up for us, as did a lot of things she said 
about Mark Vincent. One of the things we know about Mark Vincent is, is that he is not a physical person. He doesn't generally get into physical altercations. He's a very controlling person, but he is not physically abusive. Yes. And that's something we've heard from the very beginning when we interviewed Donna, that he you know, never laid a hand on her, but would shoot a gun over her shoulder um, to try to get her in check. Um discussing her relationship with Mark at length with Teresa, you know, she's always very careful to say he's not physically abusive, but he definitely has his ways of uh, keeping his women in check or trying to. Here's Teresa explaining their relationship in her own words. If you go back to the files, it was during that, after the tornado, he was already moved in with me. I was working at the South Ferry training school. He was up my dad's a lot. He was doing the rough. He was cutting down trees. You know, my sister, who's a cute little thing, she was up from Florida. She was split from her husband. He's there flirting with her, and he would, he would, and, oh, she's so pretty, oh, she's so cute. You know, and I'm a tall girl, I'm 5'7", and, you know, I'm not, I'm slim, but I'm not, uh, I don't know, I'm, I don't, I don't know, I'm average, I guess, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, you, you dirty dog, you don't do that. And my sister Peggy's like, oh, because he was, he had a very, very good physique, which he did a lot of push-ups in prison. And he had tattoos, and he had uh, the smile that will kill you. Not me, but everybody else. Mm-hmm. He, he, we would go to Highlight, Milford Highlight, and he would try to pick up the waitresses, or he'd flirt with them. As I'm coming out of the bathroom, or say I'm getting a ticket, and I see him smiling, or he grabs her or something, I'm like, really? Yeah. He says, what? What? What's your problem? I said, I don't have the problem. I'm like, I don't need this shit in my life. You know, I'm here. I was trying to help you find your kid. And that night he drove home from Highlight and Route 8. You're familiar with that. In the yep. nighttime, no lights. He's going like 120. I thought that was it. I was, I was going to die. And I couldn't stop him. He was just slowing down. He's laughing. It was like I'm a fucking horror show. I'm like, oh. This guy's got to get out of here. And then he just kept going. Like, he says, you need to go see a gynecologist. I said, I got my gynecologist. I have my doctor, blah, blah, blah. No, you need to see a female gynecologist. I said, for what? He goes, you got some feminine issues. I'm like, okay. Really? He says, yeah. So he he made me look in a phone book back in the time. I could say they made me, but they weren't going to do it now. Well, I went and I made made an appointment with a female gyno. And she says, okay, you had a pap smear six months ago. What are you doing here instead of at your... And I told her the truth. She says, you tell that guy, because he brought me there. He waited in the car. She says, you tell your boyfriend that you're fine. You're beyond fine. She said, he needs a good psychiatrist. She says, and she just shook her head like she's not even going to say anymore. I'm yeah. like, you know, no, that, that was all bullshit. That was his stories. That was his way of manipulating me. Now, Jessica, we know Mark in his life has left a trail of women whom he's manipulated, taken advantage of. This is this is not unsimilar to a lot of other stories we've heard from other women and other people about the kind of person that Mark Vincent is. That's exactly right. But I think what's important to know is that, you know, the women that are here to talk about it are really Donna and Debbie and Carol Um Roseanne is gone, you know, she's dead, Sharon's dead. Um, That's why Teresa becomes so important because she can put you right there with the man himself um, and and tell you what he's like. Um, You know, I think Donna and Carol and Debbie all have vested interests in this. You know, they're not a fan of Mark for obvious reasons, but, you know, this is a woman who has lived her own life for 30 years. I mean, these memories are really fresh for her, and I think they're uh, really painful Um, If Sharon were alive or if Roseanne were alive, I mean, who knows what they would have told us. Now, I mentioned we talked to Teresa just before taping today. And Teresa has been since 1988 and continues today to be very passionate about finding out what happened to Doreen Vincent. It means a lot to her. It's the reason why she reached out. It's the reason she wants to speak to the Wallingford police. We've passed along her information And we're hopeful at some point that they'll be in touch with her. One of the stories that she told you in one of her interviews, um, 
has a significant role in this entire story. Huntington State Park uh, has often been cited as a possible location for where Doreen's body might be. Right. And one of the things that you learned about Teresa, she has a hobby. What's that hobby? She likes to go metal detecting. It's a it's an interesting hobby. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she's looking for gold uh, or <laughs> or what it might be. Uh, Teresa is such a wonderful woman. Uh, she she enjoyed metal detecting, but one day Mark wanted to go metal detecting. Only Mark didn't want to bring her. Yep, he just wanted to bring her own personal metal detector. Here's Teresa telling the story, and then Jessica will explain the connection to this entire case. He, he took my car on a Saturday. He dropped me off at work. I had to be in work at 6 o'clock in the morning. He's going to go take his sons. He has two sons. Yes. They have two boys. Well, so he has Paul, who was born in the late 80s. And then he has David, who's 24 now. So that kid was born in 94. So I don't think you would have known. Or 94, no. 93. I don't think you would have no, known 90. him. Okay. Again, again, but okay because he's maybe Sharon. Does she have boys? Or, he said he was going to to Huntington's Park with the kids. Uh, he has a daughter and a son. Huh? He has a daughter and a son, Sarah and Paul, and I. I might be wrong on this, but I think they were born in eighty five and eighty six. Okay. Okay, so maybe those are the two cho- yeah, the two children he was going to take. I never met any of them. Never, never, never. Did did he talk about his kids? Did he talk about Sarah and Paul at all? No, never. I didn't even know. He I and the, are these from Sharon? Yes. Okay. Okay. No. No, he I didn't even know their names. Cuz I asked him one time. I said, "Um, cuz my daughter, I had my daughter at the time, but I worked a lot and her father was self-employed, so she more or less more lived with my her her father, and she would have been about ten. I said, "Well, when you take the kids, I like to go to Mystic Seaport, something nice, something." He's like, "No, they don't. We don't have time for that. Something like that. something. You just shut it right down. Like, okay, I'm sorry." But he went to Hamilton Park on on Saturday, and he had a great time, and he detailed my car out. Do you remember, do you, what timeline are we talking? When did that happen? I would say it was in, let me see, July, August, August of 90, I mean, 89. Go back into those, somewhere in July, mm. August, September, maybe. So this would have been about a year after Doreen was missing. Yeah, but he came in like six months prior to that. He was in and out. Because like you said, he must have been living with someone else. So here's what we know. Uh, at some point, Mark Vincent was seen in Huntington State Park by a ranger. Correct. And <clears throat> Mark was carrying some sort of basket or uh, maybe you could sort of explain the story and the significance of her placing him in that park. So funnily enough, when we first started investigating, we heard from a lot of people that he had been seen in the park, but they weren't ever able to place him or say who saw him or get anything on that. Um, It was when we found that article that um, identified the ranger as Paul O'Connell and he was in the park late summer. It said early fall uh, 1989. Um, Hanley is quoted in that article as saying that the ranger saw someone matching Mark's description with a car matching Mark's description, or a truck, um, taking something out of the flatbed, um, holding it like a carpet or a kid, is the quote, um, with his arms straight out in front of him. And then when the ranger called to the person to stop, I believe it was in the middle of the night, um, the person fled into the forest. Now, interestingly, Mark sent me a very Hannibal Lecter-esque text uh, about that incident in the park, which we'll share in another episode uh, as part of my ongoing uh, communications with Mark Vincent, who, again, just so everybody knows, has been offered the opportunity to come on here to help find his daughter, and Mark has thus far refused to cooperate. Now, Mark was in the park. We, we don't know what Mark had in his hands. We're certainly not going to speculate. The police wouldn't speculate. 
Nobody knows what was going on there. It's unlikely, though, all those months later that it would have been a body or anything of that nature. That that seems like it would be pretty far-fetched. I would think so. I mean, I know they've had dogs in there. Um, one article from a number of years ago said they bring dogs there every spring, but um, I asked the police that question, and I guess they don't. They don't do it every year. I know they go out there sometimes on specific dates that they think are relevant um, and look for Mark, but um, yeah, he hasn't been seen there again. And he wasn't a metal detector kind of guy, according to Teresa. Uh, so weird he would have wanted to go out on his own or with his two other children as, as the tale goes. Probably not. Also, she doesn't really remember the car necessarily needing to be detailed. No, she doesn't. In fact, she was surprised it was detailed because um, he went out. It was nuts, like something that she had asked for. But she was stranded at her house the entire day without her car. Um, I think she was looking forward to an opportunity to meet Mark's family and maybe go out and have a nice day in the park with him. Um, But he went by himself. And she sort of wondered if maybe the trip to the park wasn't to find something metal that maybe Mark had put there at some point in time. Well, agreed. I mean, we, you and I have discussed this a bunch of times. You know, he's it's, you're not using a metal detector to find a body. You're using a metal detector to find something metallic. We've talked about the comforter um, that went missing. Um, you know, we've talked about maybe a box that he was carrying. Um I find it, uh, you know, pr- pretty, it, it's a pretty, um, um, it's pretty far-fetched that he was carrying a body in because she had been gone for more than a year at that point. So it's probably not a body. Now, another big and important part of this story is that Teresa was with Mark at a pivotal moment. Obviously, when the warrants were served, they were actually together. Which, again, I think makes this so relevant for the police investigation. And, again, surprising that she hasn't been spoken to. Teresa discovered Roseanne Poloni as the other other woman. And they spoke, decided to meet. Here's Teresa talking about that encounter with Roseanne Poloni. She had a beautiful body and this and that and that and that. And I'm like, so what are you trying to tell me? What, What is he telling me? Right. You know, I'm 5'7". I was like 145 pounds. Come on, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think the good thing about the photo I'm sending you, too, is so when this woman passed away, this woman, Roseanne, I think in 2000, oh, I want to say 14, but I might be wrong. The picture of her is from, it looks like from the 70s, maybe early 80s. So it's not an older photo. And you'll, if you, if you recognize her, because what, what did the woman look like that you met? remember and I'm trying to figure out too do you know when you called her and spoke with her and met with her I'm just trying to figure out the timeline here uh, I'm gonna say it had to be in August Some, it's, it's, uh, I can just get the time from July August somewhere in there I have to if you can pull up my old phone records have some, one of the detectives do it I give you permission the lady upstairs, I asked her, would she get my mail? Because she lived upstairs, the, the um, owners. Mm-hmm. She says, I said, would you hold my mail for me? She says, yeah, okay. Because usually she just put it, she slide it through her door, and I catch it on the stairs. So she held it, and, I, and, and this detective was at my place, and we were both all looking around like, she's just, he can pull in any minute or whatever, and I was scared. Teresa Lyon is such a pivotal character in this entire story from... November of 1988 until June of 1989, the police had no idea where Mark Vincent was. He was bouncing between the homes of 
Roseanne Poloni and Teresa Lyon and possibly others. The police wanted to talk to Mark. Mark claimed that he was being watched. There's no evidence that that's the case. But Teresa was literally with him on a very important day when those warrants were served on several properties and Mark's truck and, of course, 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road. Coming up after the break, we'll have more of Teresa Lyon in her own words, part of uh, several interviews that Jessica Fritz Aguirre, uh, the lead investigator on this case, has done. Right now, we want to just uh, do a quick thank you to our sponsor, Crooms Creations. I want to take a moment to thank my friends at Crooms Creations for their support. Original home decor based out of Wyndham, Connecticut. You can get custom-made works of art for your home, and it's all made out of repurposed materials. All one-of-a-kind and all recycled woodwork. So pay them a visit at croomscreations.com. And you can put in your custom order on their Facebook page. That's Crooms Creations. C-R-O-O-M-S Creations. And find out what they can add to your home. I'm Joe McGuire, the executive producer of Faded Out. Sarah Damiel is in Des Moines, Iowa, and we'll have season one updates in the Johnny Gosh case beginning on Tuesday, April 23rd. This episode, episode 10 of season two of Faded Out, is all about Teresa Lyon, a person who was uh, the girlfriend of Mark Vincent, literally with Mark when the warrants got served. She dated this man two times. Not sure why she did it either time. (laughs) Jessica Fritz Aguirre, lead investigator. uh, What did she tell you in regards to why? What is it about Mark Vincent with all these women? What what is the allure? He's extremely charming. Um, He's able to manipulate your emotions very well. Um, there's not a huge age difference, but I do note that she is three years younger than he is, just like Donna. Um, he does, I think, prefer younger women. Um, she had gotten out of a bad relationship both times. Um, the first time she was only 18, the second time she was 28. And I just think, um, you know, he, he picks up on that emotional vulnerability, um, and he knows how to exploit it and, uh, use it in his best interest. Teresa... Was was fortunate enough in her life to realize the kind of person Mark Vincent was. Here she is describing exactly the kind of person she thinks Mark is. He's a liar. He's a, he, 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 that's all he knows how to do. He's a, he, he's, a, he's a pathological liar. But he has a good memory, you know. But I know when he's lying. How do you know he's lying? I know, I know you weren't here and I knew you weren't there and I know you were hitting on this one and I know we are believing to go somewhere in the middle of the night but you can't do this to me so you need to get out of my life that kind of you know there was no intimacy I mean once and yeah mm, anyway really uh, you know I'm just trying to be as honest as I can no and that's I mean he, he, he has no empathy he, he, he never shed a tear he never taught he said to me like walking in a fog well, you know what? I swear to God, Ted Bundy said the same thing. And another psychotic person said, it's like they're in a fog. Well, when are you going to come out of the fog? No, but I think that um, this fog that he's in is is, is, is a denial that, uh, you know, he got away with something. Pretty strong words from Teresa Lyon, who had been in touch at one point with Mark's son, Paul. Mm. Uh, that ended rather abruptly when Teresa's name came up on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so Mark has not much to say either. She reached out to Mark uh, and has not gotten a response. Teresa was able to uh, talk a little bit about what she knew about Doreen and the relationship between Mark and Doreen. And again, this all totally jives with everything we had heard from Donna and Carol and Debbie. Here's Teresa talking about some of the problems he was having with Doreen. I said to Mark, I said, if she leaves the house and is gone for 20 minutes, I'm going to call the cops. I can't find her. Yeah. Well, you got to understand, she was going, she's going into her teens, you know, and she, I didn't like the clothes she was wearing. I said, so she's being a teenager a little bit. And of course, Sharon, I don't know anything about her. The only thing in my head, the way I pictured her was 
a holy living bowler. She was a holy bowler, always going to church, and that's how I never met her, but I can just picture her that way. You know, and here she takes off to church and comes home at 11, and why didn't she crawl? Why didn't she do anything? That's what I don't understand. Okay, I want to talk about the clothes. He told you that he didn't like the clothes she was wearing? Yeah, I, I'm like, I said, well, like, what? I mean, I haven't seen her since she was three, so I don't know what he's talking about. But I'm looking at him, you know, he's a very handsome man with that chiseled features and all that. And, you know, back then, well, think about the 80s back then. What were they wearing? They were wearing, um, you know, that cute little the halter tops, I guess, the little midriffs, you know, the shorts. I don't, maybe the pants were too tight. I don't know. He says now that, that, that she didn't have, um, I wouldn't say the respect. He didn't use that word because I don't even think he knows what that word is. He he wasn't. Uh, she, he just didn't like the lifestyle that she was going into. Apparently, as a teenager, I don't know. Did he say anything? I mean, what the lifestyle? Did it involve more than the clothes that she was wearing? No, that was. He never mentioned any boyfriends. And I'm like, they're twelve <clears throat> years old. They're they're still with girls, I think. But you know, they're starting to like the boys. I, I just don't know how she was brought up. So I can't. You know, I don't know her. So I don't know if anybody knows her or knows of her. You know, they can give you a better idea of how she dressed. But all, but he had that he he had that obsession with women about what they dressed. You know, that girlfriend you live with. You say Roseanne's her name. Well, he was burning her clothes because they were inappropriate for her to. Well, uh, and then he hid snakes, live snakes, in her counter drawer. He hid live snakes in her counter drawer. We've heard similar allegations made by Donna. Uh, back when, when she and Mark were together, Donna said that uh, there was an occasion uh, where Mark put glass in the bed. Well, and that doesn't make sense to me, and it never has, but I guess when you remove sense from the equation, it's better. Yeah, the glass was supposed to prevent Donna from having sex with anyone else while Mark was out of the house. Um, so Donna would just not sleep in the bed because it was covered in glass it was covered in ground up glass yeah but again you could understand where you you hear Teresa make these claims some of the stuff almost sounds a little outrageous but again given others who have, have talked to us in these interviews this all seems to jive out to being the kind of person he is well I think the burning the clothes in the fire pit so that wasn't necessarily clear I think Teresa was unclear as to whether that was the thing that resulted in the domestic violence call but then I did float that to the police uh, when we met with them and they did, you know, they did confirm that that and I've never been able to see it. But that is what happened when the police were called. He was burning her clothes in a fire pit. And to be clear, Mark Vincent is not typically a violent person. Mark Vincent typically, uh, at least in our investigation, we have seen nowhere where Mark tends to get physically violent with people. Just want to put that out there. Uh, but Mark does a lot of weird things. You also interviewed uh, one of his his boss at the time mm -hmm. that Doreen went missing, uh, and he told us about uh, a man who would basically bum money off of everybody and not pay them back. Mm -hmm. um, we'll be featuring some of Frank's audio uh, in an upcoming episode where you'll you'll learn a little bit more about the man. Mm -hmm. And here's Teresa again. Sort of confirming what we had already known about Mark. Here she is talking about Mark at work. He never made any friends up there. He never made any friends. I don't even think he had a friend, ever. Did it ever strike you? How did his relationship with his siblings strike you? I never really met him. He mentioned, I think I met Jay once. Mm -hmm. I, that was so long ago, but he, he always kept his family far away from me. Almost as if he wanted to hide him away from me, like... Who cares? You know, I don't think your sister would have a problem meeting me. I wouldn't have a problem meeting her. Hi, how you doing? Okay. But he didn't, he, he just kept the distance. It's, you know, like going up to his mom that one time was a big thing. Like, I ought to be proud. I ought to be honored. Right. That's how it made me feel. Yeah. Like, well, whatever. Well, I think one thing, and we can talk about, you know, narcissism. I think one thing narcissists do or sociopaths do is keep people away from each other i mean that meeting between you and roseanne for him must have been a nightmare yeah he was yeah it was it was um 
that ride home that one time on Route 8, he was out of control. It was almost, I swear, he blacked eyes. And there was nothing I could do. I just stood there. I had my eyes squinted closed. And I'm like, this is it. He's going to just one little touch of the wheel, and that's it. I mean, that's how fast we were going. And I told him when we got home, I said, you're never driving my car again. And he's laughing. What's the matter? Don't you have any fun in you or something stupid like that? I says, yeah. And I was, I was upset. I was, he got me more upset in this relationship than it was good. Yeah. And it was always like that, you know, because he was so distant, so cold, so degrading, so, uh, I don't know. You know, look in his eyes. He doesn't have any soul, <laughs> you know. Very powerful words by Teresa Lyon. Again, she spent a lot of time with this man, was in a relationship with him twice, really seems to know the man very well, and she's not saying anything we haven't heard from other people. Right. So just, again, we're trying to give you an idea of who this person is and trying to understand how uh, anybody, especially him, could feel as though there's no more to be done here in in figuring out what happened to Doreen. As I mentioned right off the top, there's never been a shred of evidence to suggest that Doreen left the house at any point that day. And Sarah floated this already once um, in a previous episode that June 15th is uh, probably not the actual day that she went missing that Doreen was probably already missing by that point. And again, coming up in future episodes, you're going to hear from somebody who can pretty much prove that the timeline Mark gave to the police was even more deceptive and thus even more hard to understand in the context of your daughter being missing. Mm -hmm. Now, Teresa also told us a story, and, and again, this was kind of weird, about the Southbury Training School. And Donna and her whole family also are connected to that school through various people. Everybody seemed to kind of know each other. A lot of these people had gone to high school together in, in previous years. And in talking to them, uh, this story came up about a, a person Mark was involved with working at the Southbury Training School. Mm-hmm. Jessica, you reached out to her and she called you back a month later after the podcast had started and she she wasn't pleasant in, in the voicemail she left. Would you like me to talk to you about what Teresa told me she said? Yes. Teresa told me that this woman warned her against dating Mark because um, he had taken an aerosol can and shot it at this woman's face while lighting the spray on fire. Which seems like it either happened or it didn't. And it was definitely, um, you know, crystal clear in someone's head. So I decided to call this woman up. And ask her about it. Um, she claimed to not remember. She claimed to not remember the name Mark Vincent um, or Teresa Poplis, which is Teresa's um, original maiden name. Um, admitted to having worked at Southbury Training School. Admitted to working in the years in question, but um, told me that she. I had no idea what I was talking about. She was going to look into it. Um, I would say about two months later, she called me up and left me a nasty voicemail telling me that I was bogus, that what we were doing is a sham, and that she doesn't remember any of those names. Um, She also called into question my ability to find her phone number on Google, which I'm kind of new at this investigating stuff. The internet, people. You can find anything you want on the internet. Well, I mean, for her to express shock that I knew who she was and where she worked and then sort of disavow everything else struck me as strange, but... um, did raise in my mind the question of whether she's in contact with Mark because I think it wasn't until we started uh you know talking about Mark in earnest on this podcast um that she did call me back like I said a month and a half two months later to curse me out really this case is it's amazing you know just in the course of you know the investigating that you've done we have weekly meetings where you and me and Sarah sit and and we try to make sense of everything we've got our own theory which you and i had a chance to meet with the police and to 
uh, delivered to them. It's something we'll be able to share again uh, in future episodes. And, and I hope people can understand that the reason why we're not necessarily trying to tease this story along, this is an open and active investigation. Mm-hmm. And we've been in contact with the police there's obviously a fine line between what citizens can do and what the police can can ask citizens to do. Uh, there's a very fine line there, and the Wallingford police have been pretty professional about that, uh, and we certainly appreciate that. They very much would like to get this thing put to rest mm-hmm. uh, as, as much as anybody. I think what needs to happen then is that they need to talk to this woman that we've been listening to um, this whole episode Teresa called um, the police station um, when the podcast first came out and told them she'd like to discuss um, Doreen's disappearance with them and everything she knew about Mark. They told her that the write-up in the paper where it said Mark was missing for all those months was a journalistic error and that they knew where Mark was at all times, which is funny because it says in the warrant, the sworn warrant from Hanley and Fliss, that they didn't. They didn't know where he was. So, you know, it, it, it seems in some ways, and, and this, I mean, it makes sense. We have the utmost respect for law enforcement. We do. And I understand a certain amount of protecting the badge and, and, and all that goes into being a police officer. It is a, a very uh, noble position to hold in your community to, to take on that responsibility for the community. And it, it's, a, it's a police department that doesn't necessarily have a ton of resources. Mm-hmm. Wallingford's a very rural town, um, and they're doing the best they can. This case was difficult from the onset, and when you're being given false information, and that's what gets reported in the newspaper, things get very blurred. And from the very beginning, as Sarah's been delving into a lot of these articles you're hearing, the majority of the information came from Mark and Sharon, and it just isn't true. And again, as we proceed along with, with the rest of these episodes, as we get through this season, you're going to see more and more that things that were said uh, that were reported in the newspaper and taken as fact in this case were very inaccurate. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a shame because as time has gone on, a lot of witnesses have died. You know, Mark's mother is gone. Georgia Lewis is gone. Roseanne Poloni is gone. Obviously, Sharon, huge in this case, is gone. And so that's why it's important to talk to the people who do remain, who know a lot. And that's Debbie, Carol, and Donna, and a woman like Teresa Lyon. I know there are people who are listening to this podcast who know Mark, are friendly with Mark, and work with Mark. And... I would just say this. There's a 12-year-old girl who lived a tortured life who's been missing for 30 years. And her family just wants to know what happened. They just want to know where she is. Coming up, in the next episode of Faded Out, uh, with Sarah still out on assignment, Jessica and I will be back. We'll give you a little bit more of Teresa Lyon and perhaps delve into some other uh, pretty amazing interviews. I, I do have to say this, and, and I speak for Sarah when I say this, Jessica, your investigation is has been unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I know how much time you've put into this case. How much time you've spent with Donna and her family in keeping open the lines of communication. You're going to make me cry now. Well, I just, I I mean, people should really understand that, you know, this is a podcast and this is, this is something that we do in our, in our spare time, Sarah and you and me, this is something we're passionate about this. We want this girl found Mm -hmm. and we're, we're doing everything we can to make it happen Uh, We'd love for you to help us to support this. Um, If you want to go on Patreon and help fund this thing, uh, we are getting closer. As I mentioned, we did already talk to the police about what we think happened. They are following up on some of the leads that we've brought their way. And with your help, I really think that we can get this solved. So if you're uh, able to, please visit patreon.com backslash faded out podcast 
Uh, every dollar uh, that you can contribute is going to go help towards finding her. Uh, your payoff is all sorts of behind the scenes. You want to see the warrants. You want to see pictures. We've got all sorts of things, full-on interviews that you could check out. And obviously, the more you're able to donate, uh, the more access you're able to get to see all this amazing stuff uh, that Jessica has been digging through uh, for the past couple of months. You certainly uh, impressed the chief of police I with did. the amount <laughs> of headway you've made in two months of investigating. So uh, once again, I, I would ask you, if you can, please please visit the Patreon page. Please share this with other people. Uh, we got to get the word out. The difference between Johnny Gosh's case and this one is everybody knows Johnny Gosh. Yeah, he's internationally known. There's documentaries, um, Phil Donahue, Oprah. I mean, it's been, you know, Dateline. It's been discussed. Um, and I and I did see stuff on the followers of Faded Out page, which you can also join, um, which Sarah and I regularly chime in on, you know, saying it's 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 maybe there's not as much interest in Doreen's case because... There's not as much detail. I mean, I'm here to tell you there is, you know, there's every time I dig, you know, I scratch the surface of something more comes up, um, more people want to talk. You know, we get more phone calls. Um, we we figure out another piece that works into the theory of the case. Um, so it's there. It's just not, like I said, internationally known. But we also have to remember, too, it's a little girl that, you know, needs to be reunited with her family. So anything you can do to help us solve that is uh, is huge. Thank you so much for listening. For Jessica Fritz-Aguire, I'm Joe McGuire. This has been episode 10 of season two of Faded Out. <laughs>